0: Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.
1: Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. I don't even know where to begin with this one. You've probably heard of Cambridge Analytica. Maybe you know they're a company that did some nefarious things involving Facebook and the 2016 U.S. presidential elections. If you're anything like me, you don't know the half of it. If you get through this episode without wanting to move to a remote hut in the Arctic Circle, I will personally refund this hour of your life. My guest today is Christopher Wiley, author of MindFuck, Cambridge Analytica, and The Plot to Break America. In high school, he found himself on the outside of lots of social circles. Computers and hacker culture gave him community, identity, From there, it's a long, strange trip through progressive politics in Canada to military psyops in London to helping Steve Bannon and the billionaire Robert Mercer build the most powerful psychological weapon of mass destruction in existence, as Chris describes it, one that very likely won the presidency for Donald Trump and the Brexit vote. Chris was 24 at the time. When the scale and the consequences of Cambridge Analytica got too big to ignore, he turned whistleblower and none of our lives, his definitely included... Will ever be the same welcome to think again chris thanks for having me the thing that stands out for me like having read your book i mean first of all there was a lot of information in there that i didn't really know before i'd heard bits and pieces and but the very kind of peripheral and provisional way that most of us follow this kind of news when it comes out like i mean that i had only grabbed bits and pieces and the Matrix-like way that all of us, like how easy it is for all of us just to kind of slip back into the stream of ordinary reality and social media, yeah. even when things like this happen. Yeah. I mean, that
2: was a big motivation later to, to actually write a book because, you know, I would spent two years of my life working with journalists, working with law enforcement, working with investigations all around the world. And the story did get a lot of coverage. But when you're writing in the New York Times or The Guardian, and they did a fantastic job You've only got so much real estate on your page right. to actually write about the story. And so one of the things that I found really frustrating just generally about it was that there was so much more to what the company was doing than was actually explained to people. Because so often the story was just sort of like something sketchy happened with Facebook data. There's this pink haired guy. <laughs> and like it has something to do with like the alt-right and Russia's involved, I think. Right. Like and it's like okay, yeah, you've hit the sort of top line notes, <laughs> but like but like let me now explain to you and walk you through how does this work? And what does it you know, one of the things that I really wanted to do when I when I watch, you know, American media, you know, CNN or NBC or whatever, so often I'll hear people talk about Russian interference, right? right. But very often people don't actually explain like what is that? Or data misuse? But like what is it and why is it Why is it bad? And so one of the things that I really wanted to do was just explain in this sort of journey that I had, what is it? Why do you need to be worried about what an algorithm can do? Why do you need to be worried about pervasive surveillance in our society? You know, why do you need to be as worried about what that app on your iPhone is doing as what the NSA is doing?
1: Let's talk a little bit about this psychological modeling, which is very much the heart heart of this thing, like the early insight that you maybe first encounter with the Obama campaign, Mm. that voters are voting based on temperament, on identity, on kind of psychological profile. These are the things that motivate people to act not kind yeah. of big demographic buckets right yeah and then from there to what what it means to try to create you know a psychological model of a society that an actual society that you can then poke around.
2: The way I think about it is imagine you're on a blind date and you go and you meet somebody and, you know, they talk about all the music that you listen to and how they love it and all the TV shows that you watch. And, you know, they know some of the same people and they hang out in the same places. And oh my God, this, this person is perfect for me. Oh, this is great. Like I finally found like the one. Right. And only later to realize the reason why they seem so perfect for you is because they've spent two years stalking you, going through your photos, reading your text messages messages, talking to your friends, following you at work, following you on the bus, everywhere you go, they're there. And that's both what Facebook is, and also what Cambridge Analytica did. They just did it at scale. And when I started working um, at the company, I was recruited originally for a military contractor before Cambridge Analytica. SCL. SCL called. Group. Yeah. Before Cambridge Analytica was in existence, when it was just a twinkle in Steve Bannon's eye, we were a military contractor that was looking at how can we build modern defenses online to extremism. When you look at ISIS, for example, which was just bubbling up at the time. Um, this is around what year? It's like that 2013. You join ACL. Yeah. yeah okay. um, so back in sort of the early days, it was recruiting online. It was disseminating its ideology online. It was organizing online. ISIS was a mobile-first, digital-first brand in a way, if you right, can think sure. about it like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And one of the problems with the U.S. military historically is that. Because it has these giant budgets, you've got generals with unlimited funds and they're like boys with toys. They want to buy big phallic shaped things that blow (laughs) up. And when you look at ISIS, for example, or Mm. indeed Russia, which actually the dirty secret about Russia is that half of its nukes don't work and it can't actually afford a large scale conventional military force anymore, is that something that's a hell of a lot cheaper is to get, whether it's data scientists, psychologists, tech people in a room, you take the price of one nuclear missile, right? And you can have an entire warehouse of hacker people. And so a lot of less conventional warfare that we're seeing now emerging in the past sort of one or two decades is actually because of this resource constraint, and you can't shoot a tank at the internet. So one of the things that the American military was really struggling with was that it has lots of nukes, but like nukes aren't going to help help protect you from radicalization around the world. And the other problem that the military had and still has is that because somebody like me, pink haired, nose ring dude who kind of sashays into the office <laughs> when he feels like it and um, of course does not smoke any weed, um, <laughs> um, I, I, can't, I can't remember if it's legal here or not. That's, um, that's because of the weed that you don't smoke. Th- yes, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, uh, so I, I, couldn't, I couldn't work in any kind of cyber operations for the military, right? right? And also because you can go and work at a big Silicon Valley company where you get paid to sit in a beanbag chair all day and, you know, think about things and program stuff that you want to, there is a huge gap in American and more broadly Western defenses, when it comes to cyber and information operations. Got you. And so when I started at SCL Group, I got recruited. I was doing my PhD in fashion trend forecasting. Right. Oh, and I want to break in here. I'm sorry, and
1: I want to say two things. One is that when we're talking about militarized tech yeah. operations, we're talking about two things. There's there's hacking to disrupt and to
2: get information
1: yeah. on the one hand and then there's psyops propaganda dispersal yeah. yeah
2: and and people kind of often like conflate hacking which is with sort of propaganda and all that and they're actually very different right. operations and so when i started at the firm the reason why I got recruited is because there weren't that many people who were researching how to use AI and data to forecast movements in culture. And when you Which think you about- Which you
1: were doing in political campaigns Political campaigns.
2: And then I moved into fashion and started looking at fashion trends. Right. Um, and identity and all that kind of stuff. And that appealed to this military firm because at the time DARPA, which is the US military's research agency, was funding lots of R&D work in how to map out how narratives spread online. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is just this kind of random coincidence that one of our clients who was working at the US Air Force at the time was sitting on a plane with some of the some associates of Steve Bannon, right, and they were in economy because I guess it doesn't pay well or something, and <laughs> you know, and as I guess some people do it's like oh i 've got the middle seat, so i 'm going to just chit chat <laughs> away, so these alt right tea party people just started chatting with this army guy or air force guy. Right. You know, what do you do? What do you do? Oh, like I work in like information and psychological operations, like to defend America. Oh, we need that. <laughs> right. And so they then facilitated an introduction between Steve Bannon and my boss at the time. Before we get to that, I want to say one thing
1: also that back onto the ISIS ISIS thing. You had the insight that what they were doing, what their their branding online, mm. the way that they were recruiting people, had a lot in common with fashion and fashion yeah. trends, and that you're looking at how someone gets infected with an identity. In yeah. A sense. So
2: like, when one of the things that I noticed early on when we were looking at a lot of this sort of radical jihadist recruitment is that when you first try to capture somebody in the, in the West, right, you don't capture them with citing lots about the Quran. Right. Actually, most of their recruitment didn't usually begin with anything to do with Quranic verses or anything about Islam as a religion. They would have these videos that were like living the jihadi life. And it would be like cool cars and like a cool house and like interesting sort of like, I guess, Islamic RB, I don't know what to call <laughs> it. You know, and so and and they would be targeting what the, the military called yums, young unmarried men, that if you are sitting in a situation, in a housing project in England, for example, right? And you're a young Muslim guy and you have been excluded in lots of different ways from society, whether it's job opportunities or education or whatever, and you're frustrated. And then you see all these kind of cool videos. It's like, okay, cool. These people look like me. They sound like me. You know, what's this about? And you then start to click and click and click and click. And then what starts to lure you in, and then all of a sudden, you now have a very clear explanation. Your life sucks because you haven't embraced a purpose, and we will give you that right. purpose. We can make you into who you want to be. And these people who are screwing around with your life, well, it's because they're effectively in cahoots with the devil. And actually, all of a sudden, there's this like really clear explanation like, I can be cool. I can be a warrior. I can be a man now. And also, I've got a divine right to this. So a lot of the, the recruits that they had, they weren't talking to you know people at their mosque every day. They weren't actually studying the religion. They got radicalized for other means. When you look at what Cambridge Analytica did in the United States, right, where there was a method to Steve Bannon's madness for trying to acquire this company. And because, I should
1: tell the people, I should tell, tell the audience that like the impetus, I mean, Steve Bannon introduces... You meet Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon introduces you to Robert Mercer, the billionaire. Yeah. But it's
2: Steve Bannon's dog in the fight. He's just a kind of a money cul- guy.
1: Culture war. He yeah. wants
2: to. I mean, Steve. Steve Bannon. You know, at the time, he was the editor of Breitbart. Right. And Andrew Breitbart, before he died, his sort of founding vision was that politics exists downstream from culture. So, if you want to make any change. Change culture, focus on culture. Ignore the like day-to-day political dogfights. Because if you create an enduring change in culture, politics will just flow from that. And that's originally what Breitbart was set out to do. The problem was that Breitbart became effectively just a hate blog for like straight white dudes who can't get laid.
1: Marginalized and ignored by yeah. the mainstream. A lot like
2: the young unmarried men that the military was worried about who were being targets of, you know, radical Islam. Right. And so one of the things that I think appealed to Steve Bannon is that bizarrely, we were as a company really familiar with his audience, just in a way that wasn't necessarily um, (laughs) intuitive to a lot of people, but for him it was we understood the power of a humiliated man. We understood what you could do with people who are on the fringes of society. We started out our work with the purpose of trying to mitigate extremism and radicalization. But hey, ho, if we're good at finding, locating, and understanding this kind of person, you could flip that right around. And so after we got acquired and our company then got rebranded as Cambridge Analytica, and the work started in the United States. We were still looking for people who had this kind of profile on the fringes of society, more prone to paranoid ideation, had a lot of chips on their shoulders. Right. And instead of trying to mitigate the likelihood that they would engage in extremist ideologies or become radicalized, that's exactly what Steve Bannon wanted to do. He wanted to radicalize these people. It's just, instead, it's the alt-right. And initially, you didn't, you know, in order to do that, you need to ideally, I mean,
1: you can, propaganda has existed for- Since the dawn of time. Ever. Yeah. You know, you could drop leaflets on people, as you you point out in the book. And certainly Nazi Germany had its own effective means of- injecting the narrative into people's brains. But to really do this effectively, you want to have as complete as possible, as detailed as possible, a model of each individual person. And so initially in America,
2: you didn't have that. And so when you look at historic examples, we were talking about with Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union or Mao's China, whatever, historically, the reason why a lot of these movements were able to effectively indoctrinate an entire nation with a very extreme ideology is because they made a very concerted effort to gain what the military would call informational dominance, right? Right. They controlled the radio. In in military strategy, you can sum up everything with one word, dominance. It's not just an SNM thing. It's like, (laughs) it's a military strategy, right? You want more air power, more ground power, more, you know, naval support all of that, but also information. And so, you know, the Soviet Union worked or Nazi Germany worked because you turn on the radio, it's what they want you to hear. You turn on the TV, you read a newspaper, you talk to people in the town square, there's a narrative, they control that narrative. And in the West, that historically would have been very difficult to accomplish when you have diverse media landscape, you have editors. Well, you now have this thing called social media, which is now everybody's entry point into finding information. You have the internet. And so you can now accomplish the same objective that every kind of autocratic and authoritarian regime in history has tried to achieve, informational dominance, you just dominate a specific cohort of people, you identify them, and then you invite them into channels of information that you can influence, and then you can start to feed them stuff.
1: The difference with radio, for example, or television, is that it was only one way. So you could kind of bombard the populace with messaging and maybe it would infect you know, it would probably infect a, a number of people. But now we are giving our whole lives, we are giving the details of our interests
2: and robust pictures of ourselves. So it's a two-way
1: conversation.
2: Yeah. You know? And yeah. so imagine you're sitting in your living room and, you know, it's late at night and you're just randomly clicking on stuff as everybody does. And you just see this sort of ad like, oh, what's Obama going to do? Or like, it might not even be, you know, that obvious right. to you. you, click on it. And then it's a page or it's a group or whatever. And you Seeing a lot of people having conversations, and you join it, and then you start having conversations with people, and you start seeing, you know, hey, like, thanks for joining the group. Have you checked this out? Oh my god, can you can you believe what they're doing? And so you start clicking on stuff, and you start seeing lots of people or things that seem like people talking about stuff on groups and pages right. about all these things. And because of the nature of the way a lot of social platforms work, which calibrates your newsfeed based on engagement, right. If all of a sudden a platform's algorithm working behind the scenes notices that you're like clicking on a lot of this kind of stuff, well, it's going to change your newsfeed so you start seeing more of it Mm -hmm. because this is what makes you unique and this is what's going to engage you. So then you've got companies like Facebook or Twitter or whatever doing half the work for you because their AI is geared just towards engagement, right? right? So you start clicking, you start seeing it everywhere. And once these groups would get to a sufficient scale, the company Cambridge Analytica would invite people to go to events Come in and actually meet people, and which may or may not have a moderator at all. No, like, it I mean, might just be yeah. it. to you looking at it. It seems like it's just a bunch of guys who care about particular things, and like they're going to go meet at a coffee shop, and like, oh, I've been following this group for months now, and like I'm going to meet some people, right? And so all of a sudden, what started as sort of this like dabbling in a digital fantasy, now you are face to face with people who sound like you, who talk like you who care about the same things like you, and they're like a plumber, a electrician, a teacher, your local pharmacist, like whatever. They don't have an agenda. Right. They just care, right? Like you. It's more effective. And, Nobody, and, there's
1: no power or structure trying no, to convince you.
2: Except like... what they don't realize is that they've all been put there right. for a reason, <laughs> right. right? But when they start hearing face to face, these people who don't have an agenda, and then they turn on CNN or read, you know, the Washington Post or whatever, and like, they're not seeing anything in those forms of media that they're literally like, everyone around me. My neighbors are talking about this. I see this everywhere online and I turn on like CNN and they're not talking about any of this why because they have an agenda and they're fake news right it's CNN NBC The New York Times WaPO whatever they're the propaganda they're the fake news my neighbor the plumber is telling me who doesn't have an agenda he's not paid to say this he's being honest and these people aren't being honest that is really important because if you want to catalyze an insurgency if you want to radicalize people and you look at all kinds of extremist groups and they all use the same kind of strategy you first have to isolate if you can't isolate isolate a person from other sources of counter narrative, then it's not going to be effective. So you have to destroy trust and have people, you know, it's the same with ISIS or different groups. Stop meeting your friends. Stop talking to your parents. Stop talking to these people who are going to tell you that this is wrong because they've got an agenda. We're telling you the truth. And it's the same way with the alt-right. Stop listening to the news. Stop listening to experts. Stop listening to all these people. Listen to us. Listen to your neighbor who doesn't have an agenda. And once you isolate those people, then you are more secured in building your insurgency because no matter how many experts are thrown at them, how many facts are thrown at them, they're just not going to believe it anymore. Mm. And... At that point, once those people start building relationships with each other, then an organic movement starts to form. And the whole role of Cambridge Analytica in Steve Bannon's vision for the alt-right was to seed an insurgency in America. And and that's really what I found so appalling about it is that Cambridge Analytica took the same research and the same tools that we were developing to protect our democracies from infiltration from radical groups and inverted it to promote radicalization. And you liked Steve when you met him like you had a lot in common like when you talked to him at first. It's sort of weird to say but yeah. (laughs) Like you know. You found him to be a fellow nerd. He was uh, you know he like reads Reddit he like knows about like World of Warcraft and like gaming Judith Butler from Co Yeah Judith Butler. We talked about like the performativity of identity at the same time as talking about like poning people online. And so this guy who you know is kind of a gross portly man with a really terrible dress sense where he'd wear several shirts all at once. <laughs> at the same time, he was just fascinating to talk to. And Do you know, you, this is and it's, yeah, it's important yeah. to remember, this is before Steve Bannon. I didn't even know who he was. Right. I was told he was Steve from America, go meet him at Cambridge. I'm like, "Okay, cool. He's here for some academic event and he's some guy who's interested in politics or whatever." And we just had a chat and it was after that chat that he then went back to Robert Mercer and said you need to buy this company and, and Mercer's dog in the fight is that
1: he would want Republicans elected long term I mean it's not he, he didn't have he, the same vision Bannon no, did. no exactly. Bannon had a much deeper vision yeah. but
2: once you become a billionaire there's not that many things that you can do that are like a challenge anymore right because you can like there's only so many airplanes that you can buy or like giant yachts or companies and at some point you need like a challenge and one of the reasons why why a lot of billionaires start to move into politics. It's something that you can't, money helps a lot, right? And your connections help a lot, but you can't just buy stuff. You can't right. just buy a government. Right. And so for him, I think, you know, this is a guy who like plays with like making model cities and model trains and stuff. Right. And for him, it's like, and, and his background, he's a computer scientist, right? You know, his hedge funds, was one of the first hedge funds to really properly deploy AI to make money. And so he made his billions through math, through modeling. And it's the guy who likes to model stuff, and so this is kind of an interesting engineering experiment. Right. If you get enough data on everybody, could you create a like a replica of society in the same way that I have my you know replica train set in the basement? Could right. I create a computational replica of society, and then could I play with that in the same way that I would play with a model train set? And it, the way they structured it, what it meant was because it wasn't a pack, it wasn't a super pack, right, it wasn't right, a right. campaign, it's it a wasn't anything. Yeah. Right? A if I put in 20 million dollars into this thing. I'm an I'm a shareholder who's investing in my company. I'm not donating to a PAC, so I don't have to declare what I'm doing. I can keep this on the DL, right? And so all of a sudden you had this just perfect confluence of people. The money guy who's interested in modeling society and like understood math really well, understood right. programming really well. And had a certain kind of academic interest in what we were doing. You had Steve Bannon, who intuitively really understood how cultures change and had the sort of like motivation to like do something big. And then you had a team of people who were like originally doing research on like radicalization online who like knew a lot about extremism and why people join groups and that all got put together.
1: What struck me repeatedly as I was reading the book, I'm thinking like, okay, we are psychologically vulnerable. We are cognitively biased. We have all of these flaws. I know this. I've read, I've read these, you know, papers and for me and for, I think, a lot of other people. That is a reason, the fact that we are all vulnerable in these ways is a reason for compassion, concern, protection of fellow humans. The idea that it becomes, I mean, the fact that it can be used as leverage to like fuck with people and change their behavior and change the world, Yeah, that that leads some people, I mean, a psychopath okay but like just regular people quote-unquote regular people to at scale attempt to just play with people like chess pieces i cannot accept that that's just the way of the world but evidently it is also happening history is
2: littered with Mm -hmm. examples of lots of ordinary people working on horrific things right you look at the history of, you know, just the 20th century, right? You've got Nazi Germany, you've got Soviet Union, you've got Maoist China, you na- like, you, like you name it. You can, you, there's tons of examples, you know. And it's not to say everybody in Germany in the 1940s was a terrible person. Everybody in the Soviet Union wasn't a terrible person. Everybody in Maoist China wasn't a terrible person. But yet there were many people who contributed in various ways to horrific things. So one of the things that you know I talk about in the in the book is like different ways that people can be vulnerable, right? Mm. And the different biases that people have. But really, that's a really important word, vulnerable, right? So if you if you take the example of that blind date, right? Of that person who knew everything about you and you started dating them. And only later did you find out that the reason why they were so perfect is because they stalked you for ages. And actually they're they're only falling in love with you because they actually want your money or they right. want something from you. Most people, I would hope, don't point at the person and go, you idiot, you stupid person, <laughs> right, right. it's your fault, right? No, you say, you were manipulated. You are a victim in that situation right. because you did not know what you did not know. And everybody is a fallible human being who has emotions, who has you know wants and desires and all of that. And that this person took advantage. One of the things that is so, I find disappointing about American politics right now is that there are people who believe things that are not true. America has a problem with (laughs) radicalized, paranoid people who believe in a reality that does not exist. Right. and Some of which has been planted there by things like Cambridge Analytica. Yeah. And to attack people is actually to play into the isolating factors. Because somebody, as soon as they feel attacked, you just prove... The manipulator's point, right. right? It's like, and even look, they're trying to make you feel stupid. They're trying to attack you, and it's because they, th- you know, they're the ones that are trying to trick you, right? Right. And so, th- one of the sort of insidious problems that you create, you know, and this is why, like, you can get things like ISIS bubbling up. This is why you get things like radical. Th- is that the natural reaction is to attack this person for believing crazy things? and then they believe it more right and it it's called backfire effect it, it's literally like it's it's a studied psychological effect and the really kind of worrying thing for america is like the more Vicious the political discourse gets, the worse it's going to become. It's right, going right. in one direction. We have to resist the paranoia.
1: We have to resist the tendency yes. to see the world as, like, okay, this is a, this whole and, thing and is. And a, this is
2: not to say to molly coddle people who believe in a paranoid racist ideology. But what it is to say is that this is all happening on a platform. And right now, you've got companies like Facebook going, trust us, trust us, we know what we're doing and the problem just gets worse and worse and worse and, and hey, worse. look, it's all your friends
1: anyway. It's yeah, just, it's you know, a happy it's, club. And, and, like, yeah.
2: and when I look at Mark Zuckerberg, I feel like, you know, in the Wizard of Oz, where there's like Oz and there's like that guy <laughs> yeah. behind the curtain. Yeah, he's yeah. like, don't look here. <laughs> you know, and I and I, I really do feel like it. It's like, I there, there are so many fundamental problems with the way that platform operates. And we have literally entrusted our civil discourse or frankly, right now, uncivil discourse to a private company who monetizes it. Right. Do we really want Facebook to be in charge of like so much of our political discourse, the, the foundations of our American democracy? It happened I, I, o-
1: overnight and it happened because we, because there was there's a lack of transparency, because it feels like one thing. Facebook feels like one thing, but it is what, something else. What it's allowed
2: else. to d- different you know, actors and candidates to do is when you think of the, the old notion of public discourse in, in the town square, right? Like the public forum, right? You're right. like in a town and there's like a soapbox and like, I don't know, it's like old timey. So everyone's right. wearing wigs or something. <laughs> and it's like, all right, it's like, you know, John Adams' turn to go and stand on the soapbox and talk about whatever, right? And But in that, there's some really important things that are happening, right? You've got people standing there and they're hearing the same thing. They all know that others are hearing the same thing. Right. And In that audience, you might have an opposing candidate. You might have a journalist, or even just like Joe Blow, who's a guy who knows a thing or two about what this dude is saying. Mm. And if that candidate lies, because politics is (laughs) one of the the least honest uh, areas of our society, in that situation, right, the opposing candidate can say, that's not true, or there's more to that story. A journalist can write about it. The audience can talk about it amongst themselves. They know what's happening. What Facebook and other platforms have allowed to happen... I got to interject and say also, in the town square, everybody knows each other. They see each other at the dance. Yeah, they have to, they They kind of have to, at the end of the day, you know, be neighbors. Live together. Yeah, exactly. But what Facebook has allowed to happen is, if I'm standing there as the candidate and you're listening, I can now become invisible. Mm -hmm. In fact this town square no longer, it's no longer obvious that I'm here because I'm a ghost and I can go invisibly and whisper into everybody's ear. And the people going about their business in this town square don't realize that other people are being talked to. And actually as this sort of phantom specter, I can appear like a newspaper. I can appear like an expert. I can appear like your friend. I can appear like a funny meme. I can appear like anything I want. And you don't know what I am. And in that circumstance where, where different people can see and hear different things, and they don't even know exactly who or what or why it is that they're seeing that, that breaks down public discourse because this is now happening in private. It's the privatization of public discourse. Right for profit privately manipulated for profit or for political ends or for yeah. whatever and yeah. the real harm that i am worried about for america which has its own pretty unsavory history when it comes to you know, people getting along <laughs> right. um, we'll put it that way you know cuz one of the questions that i would i would get when i went to congress is i'd talk to like members of congress and they'd be like okay What's the big deal? You're just talking about like ads. Like really like what like what's the big deal? Right. It's just ads on Facebook. Like right. why like Is do I so should I really yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? And I'm like, well, but we could use that same logic. Why should you care? It's just the part of the bus that you go on. Why should you care? It's just like the seat that you have in the movie theater. Why should you care? It's just a water fountain. It's just a park bench. Because what we're talking about is the resegregation of society. Right. But it's just rather than a racialized segregation, it is now a cognitive seg- segregation. But as I was saying before, just about you know, how as soon as you isolate and separate people, you know that's where problems can occur and one of the most insidious things about physical segregation or the racial segregation that happened in the United States and to an extent still does is that your experience of America is very different if you use the white entrance or the black entrance, right? Mm -hmm. It may be the same building, but your experience of that building is very different. And Facebook likes to talk about itself like it's a community and it uses all these sort of, you know, warm, fuzzy words. It's a gated community. And different people have different experiences on it. And what I'm so worried about is that how can you have a functioning country anymore if everybody has like a completely different understanding of the world of America, of like what's real and what's not. And you might be sitting beside your neighbor physically, but they live in a different worlds from you. And I am worried that we are allowing a company to dictate the terms of that segregation of America. And I do not have confidence that this is a company that is going to do what it needs to do in order to fix the problem.
1: Well, and let's be clear, Facebook won't necessarily be the thing forever. Other things will arise to take its place. You talk You talk about the Internet of Things and you talk about the way in which companies like Amazon are kind of taking over our physical spaces and sucking up even more robust data from our lives. And so, you know, Facebook may have been the first to do this at this scale,
2: but they won't be the last. What I'm concerned about is this trend that that we have. So, you know, Internet of Things is just around the corner. We've got, you know, 5G coming around the corner and next generation Wi-Fi coming around. And all of these things will enable your toothbrush to watch you. And I'm not even joking. Outs- yeah, yeah. Outside of my, my flat in London, yeah, yeah. there's an ad for like, an Oral-B AI-enabled toothbrush, which communicates via a connection to Oral-B like you're brushing hands. And, you,
1: and I guarantee you, I guarantee you that that your brushing habits are relevant to your psychological profile of impulsivity, of whatever else that can be manipulated. Yeah, I mean, uh,
2: and and so, but where where (laughs) I'm I'm concerned is not just how much does Oral-B know about my mouth. It is the confluence of things where you sit in a living room and your TV watches you as you're watching it, sure. right? It's talking to the fridge and the fridge is having a conversation with your toilet and you know your toothbrush and they're all talking about you and you don't know what they're saying. But the effect of that is they make decisions about you, right. what you see, what should be recommended, where you can go about your day being watched at all moments where you don't necessarily realize or see or feel that you're being watched. But decisions are made about you. And, and furthermore, that data is potentially available for sale for other
1: purposes by other actors. And,
2: and the, yeah. the, the real concern that I have, where you're sitting in your living room and your yeah. appliances are having conversations about you and you don't even realize it. Right. You know, Or where you get in your car and your car talks to the road and they make a decision about whether you should be on time for work or not, depending on your subscription package for your self-driving car. <laughs> you know, You start to lose a lot of autonomy. But there's something actually even more fundamental there. Because... If you think about it, if 10 years, 20 years down the road, to be a, a person, a human in society, where the environment itself is aware of you, mm-hmm. there's something very f- fundamental about that. Because for the first time in human history, we are no longer you know the masters of our domain. The domains are becoming masters of us, where it can see us. It can follow us. It thinks about us. It judges our behavior. It seeks to influence our behavior. And it sees everything that we do, but it's invisible. I can't see it. Privacy is non existent at and, that point. And there
1: is no privacy. You know, then.
2: one of the things that I sort of struggled with for a long time is like, how do I explain this succinctly? And I realized that actually we do have words for these invisible forces that watch us and try to influence us. They're ghosts, they're specters. It's the divine. What else watches you at all times? Right. You know, maybe it's Santa Claus. But the thing that I am worried about is, are we going to change the nature of what it is to be a person living in the world where the world literally thinks about us? And what does it mean to be a person living in that space where you know, you're not the only thing thinking in the room?
1: And the things that are thinking about you have, as you say, opinions and influence and all kinds of things over your life that you don't have access to. No. Like, it knows more about you than you know about it.
2: Yeah. And, yeah, and it worries me that there's a small set of companies right now that are working on building this vision of the future. And you don't need to take my word for it. Look at the patent applications that, you know, Amazon, Google, Facebook, you name it, have applied for networked homes and in what, in my view, is in-home surveillance. Right. Um, right. You know, where, like, you know, Alexa will be like, oh, I think you're going to get a headache. Here, have some... <laughs> Talenol. Like right, right. I'll just auto charge your account. I And I'm concerned because one of the things that I really learned being a whistleblower, you think that when there's a problem and you report it to law enforcement, you report it to an agency, you report it to the government, that there's going to be somebody somewhere who knows what to do. You think that because there's a government, there's a captain of the ship. And one of the things that I realized is that when it comes to cybercrime, data crime, or just all of these sort of kind of fucked up things that are happening on the internet right now, there is no plan. I've talked to every three-lettered agency in the United States. I've talked to the European Union, Britain, I don't know how many countries now. There is no plan. People do not know what to do and they do not know what's happening. You know, we think that there's a captain of the ship, but what happens when somebody figures out how to move the ocean? And I feel like that's what's happening right now. An ocean is being moved and we're all like, what's happening to the ship? And it's like, look outside, look at the ocean, something's happening to the ocean. Because we're just on the precipice of that, I think this is the moment where we have to make some pretty fundamental decisions about what should be allowed and not allowed when it comes to AI and when it comes to data and when it comes to more broadly a networked and digital society.
1: On that note, what I wanna do now in the little time that we have left, I spoke the other day with Ibrahim X. Kendi, who wrote a book called How to Be an Anti Racist. He's the head of the anti-racist anti-racism research and policy institute in DC. Very yeah. bright guy. And I read him an excerpt from your book. Mm. And this is his response. Sure. This was the part where you were talking about the deliberate kind of race baiting that was yeah. going on in
3: twenty fifteen. Yeah. yeah. I think that it's it's incredibly difficult. It would be incredibly difficult to truly be able to create an anti-racist society where anti-racist ideas are our common sense and anti-racist policies are the law of the land when you have people of means who have the ability and who can legally mass produce and mass circulate false and dangerous racist ideas for the consumption of unsuspecting people. I don't know whether you can truly create an anti-racist society if that is still legal. And and the reason why I say that is because people will say, oh, well, you know, you, you can just guard against that. The whole reason why these ideas are effective is because they figure out ways around the guardrails. Right. And And so, you know, I've been calling for some time for I think that we should literally ban the use of racist ideas in, in public spaces and among public officials. Mm. And that's a very specific ban. It's not saying no one can say <laughs> and express racist ideas, but public officials who have massive bully pulpits and platforms Right who have historically used racist ideas that they didn't even believe to manipulate Americans should not continue to have that ability. And in public forums like social media, these are not places and spaces where false and dangerous ideas that can lead to people being mass shot should legally be able to circulate. But people say, oh, well, you know, that's an attack on free speech. Right.
1: Or they and catastrophize and go to the like slippery slope yeah. argument, whatever. But they're doing it in Germany,
3: like you said. Yeah. And, and to me, it's, it's, that is not an attack on free speech, just as gun control is not an attack on the Second Amendment. This is trying to figure out a way to ensure that people have the ability to speak And that their speech is not going to mass harm people. That's the same thing with the Second Amendment. How do we figure out a way in which people have the ability to buy guns, but then simultaneously ensure that they're not going to mass kill and kill people with those guns? That, to me, is the happy medium we should be trying to get to with both of these amendments. So, I mean, we just have a few, you know, maybe four minutes left or whatever. But I,
1: yeah, I'd like to hear your thoughts on yeah. that in light of what. Yeah, what wrote so
2: about. you know, I I think there is a structural problem that we have. One of the problems I've found, having gone to Congress and talked to you know members of Congress and, and decision makers about the discourse and narratives that are emerging online. Is they often talk about these are services, they're free services, and they just verbatim all say the same thing, but can the law really keep up with technology? Blah, 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 blah. And right. one of the things that I realized was that these are lines, first of all, being fed by lo- countless numbers of lobbyists, Tech lobbyists yeah, from Silicon Valley, yeah, because yeah. these are not services. These are architectures. When you look at the job descriptions of most people in Silicon Valley, it's not like service and customer relations manager. It is engineer. It is architect. Right. They're the builders of extractive
1: environments that trap us within them. And
2: like- when you listen to... People in Silicon Valley talk about their creations, they often use the words, you know, like ecosystem. Right. Right. It's a digital environment. There are clues, very important clues, in the words that people in tech use to, amongst themselves to describe the tech that they're building. Right. Versus the words that lobbyists use when they go to Congress. Right. These are not services, they are architectures. And the reason I say that is because. There are countless examples of engineering, you know, whether it's in aerospace or chemical engineering or in medis- medical research, nuclear power plants. Those are all complicated pieces of technology that the law regulates for safety. And the reason I say that is because we we currently treat the internet for some reason and social platforms for some reason as if like oh, because it uses software or because it uses code, like the law will never be able to touch it because it'll just keep advancing. Right. Well, you know what? Like nuclear power plants are complicated. Cancer care is complicated. <laughs> right, right, like, right, right. you know, even like chemical engineering for like, you know, fertilizer is like complicated, right? But we've got regulators in place saying, if you want to innovate, you've got to consider the safety of society Before you, before, right, before you release, you know, your product, your medicine, your technology into the consumer market. And that's a really important point. And so to what he was saying, to me, it's not just an issue of like, how should public officials or people in, you know, with, with large platforms, how should they talk? It's like, no, no, no. What should these architectures be enabling? Right. right? And when you look at the notion of a building code or engineering standards, right? There's engineering standards for aerospace. Sure. There's engineering standards for medicine with you know chemistry. And you have to show that you've considered the safety and you've done trials before you can release medicine. If you are an architect of a physical building, you cannot make an unsafe building without fire exits and just slap some terms and conditions in a book outside and say, well, you know, I built this building without (laughs) fire exits and the doors lock and it's a maze. And you know, there might be like psychos all, all filled out, you know, in this maze, but like they should have read the terms and conditions outside. And I feel like this is what we're doing. We're letting, because we are not acknowledging that these are architectures, that we are letting these companies get away with building unsafe things. And they are unsafe. When you think about the rise in school shootings, when you think right. about the, the the rise of, you know, mental health disorders, when you think about even what happens when you put something like Facebook in Myanmar and the result is scaled hate messaging, which then results, you know, and this is not me, this is the United Nations saying, results in ethnic cleansing. That is safety. And the fact that these companies, when they come out and they say, oh, you know, we'll try harder next time. And the internet Is really complicated, and you know, we can't always know like when somebody is going to film live a mass shooting or not. And I'm like, that is the very reason why I'm saying you should not be in charge. Because if you're saying we don't actually know what's going to happen when we build these things and it's not our fault, what I'm saying is, well, somebody better make it your fault, right? Because you better do your research beforehand and understand the impacts on people of what you're building, the technologies that you're building, before you just unleash it into this mass experiment that you've created that has resulted in harm. I think that there's a more fundamental issue, which is we need, to, yes, like look at speech, look at you know, the limits of where we tolerate and where we don't tolerate hate speech, but also more fundamentally, look at the architectures that are enabling it.
1: These companies are powerful and they're rich, but I do think that your book is an important salvo in this war. Um, Thanks so much for coming on Think Again today, Chris. Cheers. Thank you for having me. Reality these days is a lot to wrap your mind around. I'd love to hear your thoughts on any of this by email through my website, jasongotts.com. I'll be back next week with Ibram X. Kendi the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist. See you then.
3: Our kids have
1: said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived.
0: Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us.
1: Just this overall sense of community, of
2: values that, you know, Minnesotans have.
0: It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids.
2: See what makes Minnesota the Star of the North.